Welcome back to Tom Profit Take, a show that pursues nuanced perspectives on life and filmmaking, in this case, more so life. This is a bonus episode and a bit of a departure from our normal content, but a welcome one. It's an interview with a World War II veteran, Herbert Herb Ridyard, and his wife of 71 years, Nancy Lou Ridyard. Interviewed by my friend Darlene Sacco and myself. We discuss everything from his service in World War II, to advice on marriage, to how things differ today versus the 40s, and also we discuss what it was like growing up in the Great Depression. I hope you enjoy this episode. Bonus take number one. Today we're joined by Herb Ridyard, who served in Patton's 3rd Army, 94th Infantry Division, 101st Infantry H Company in Europe in World War II. His division fought its way through the, is it the Saar, Moselle uh, River region and, and breached the Siegfried, the Siegfried line. And we're joined by his wife as well, Nancy Liu. And you've been married for 76 years? 71. 71. Okay, 71. Wow, congratulations. And you got, you had your, your anniversary recently? June 24th. Congratulations. Um, how, so is there anything you'd like to change about that introduction? No. No. Does that sound? Does that sound That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. How? So well, I like starting with easy questions at first. Um, how did you? How did you both meet? Well, that's my story. <laughs> I was uh, at home after the war, going to Lehigh on a GI Bill, and I met a. It was a Friday night, so uh, by exactly it was uh, October twenty seventh, nineteen forty six. And uh, I went to a high wire thing on a Friday night, just looking for fun. And I met a friend who'd been in my Boy Scout troop, Dean Garland. And uh, he said he wanted to go to a high school pep dance, the Liberty High School pep dance. And uh, I didn't want to go because I was 21 now and I knew there would be nothing but teenagers there. But he insisted that he had a girlfriend there and I should go with him. So I did. I met his girlfriend and her, her name was Marie McCallis and her best friend happened to be Nancy Lou. That's where I met her. And of course, it was love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we danced the night away. Uh, I didn't dance very well when Nancy did. And after the, <clears throat> after the dance, we walked the, uh, the girls home uh, to Nancy's place. I, 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 excuse me, I walked to Nancy's place and uh, I asked her if she'd go to the movies the next night, which was a Saturday night. She didn't answer that question. She said, uh, there's another dance over at the Masonic Temple in Bethlehem. And I took that as a yes. <laughs> and I tell everybody I walked two miles home and my feet never touched the ground once. <laughs> it was like walking on marshmallows. So that was oh. the beginning of it all. Huh. So you've, and, and when, what, do you remember, wait, what, what year was that you guys met? What year was that? It was, that would be 1946. Can we take I had just started school. Yeah. And of course, we, I had to uh, go to school. I, I did it in less than four years because I walked, went through the summer. I graduated in 49. And uh, I got a job right away. Uh, and then so that's when we became engaged at Wolves up in uh, Allentown, or between Allentown and Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. So um, we had been going together for uh, three years. 
and I moved down to uh, Hampton, Virginia, to the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, where I became a, a aeronautical research scientist. Now I was a mechanical engineer from Lehigh, but I went to night school down there to get an aeronautical degree at the University of, of Virginia. So uh, I, I could tell you about my career, but the, th the thing is, uh, I worked there for about a year, and I had uh, an eruption called a pilonidal cyst, hmm. and uh, I came home to get an operator on. And so we took the opportunity of me being home after the operation to get married. So uh, I think it was the year 50 when that came off, because I'd been down in one year. So, uh, so you were engaged for how long? How long was the engagement? One, one year was the engagement. But we, would... we had planned to be married the next year. So it just coincided that he came home for that. But we were operation. we went together for almost four years. Four years. So yeah. it's might we might be married seventy one, but it was really seventy five since <laughs> we met. That's great. Yeah. Curb. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about your your service in World War Two? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was I think I was fourteen when the Germans attacked Poland. That's in nineteen thirty nine. I was sixteen uh, when. Uh, uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. That was in 1941. Uh, it was two years later when I'm, when I'm uh, a senior in 1943 is when I enlisted. And it was interesting that the, uh, the Army, the Navy, and the Marines sent a group of uh, recruiters to our high school, Liberty High School in Bethlehem. And we just showed up one day and they said, hey, we're having an assembly. We went there and they told us about a program that uh, we might be interested in. And that was uh, if we enlisted and took infantry basic training and passed a test, they would send us to college. And that's all I heard because there's no way I'm getting to college. I had taken a college preparatory course, not having any idea how we'd ever afford to go. I heard the word college and I said, oh, well, that's for me. I asked my mom and dad if I could uh, uh, enlist. I could, you know, have waited till I got drafted. But the point is my brother Tom was already in the invasion of Africa and in Italy. So he is six years older than me. And my brother John was married and had a child. So he had a deferment for a while. He didn't go into it about the time I did. So anyway, in 43, I enlisted, and I went up to Allentown to, uh, I thought, well, I like the airplanes. I'll go join the Air Force. So I went there to the, that recruiting office, and they did an eye test and said that I couldn't, I couldn't go there. I didn't swim very well, so I wasn't going in the Navy, so I ended up going to the Army. And uh, <clears throat> I was... Bummed out a little bit about not getting into the Air Force because a lot of people in the Air Force did wore glasses. But I didn't know that this program I was in, I, they were going to send me to officers training school. And officers in the Air Force are usually pilots and they have to have good eyesight. So that's really why I didn't get in there. Nonetheless, I took the test at the, the uh, Army uh, recruiting service and 
I was I weighed 121 pounds. I was skinny all my life, and that uh, recruiter doctor said, "Do you really want to do this?" And uh, I said, "Yes." It was one of my best decisions ever. When I went to basic training, I uh, went down to Camp Hood, Texas. Uh, there's a Ford Hood, Texas, and around it they were building camps for infantry people. The Fort Hood was a place where they were uh, ha had people there in learning to to operate tank anti-tank weapons. They were tracked vehicles with a with a gun that could attack a tank. So that was mostly Fort Hood, but I went down there and uh, it was just the exercise, the change in. Uh, Every day we got up at 4.30 in the morning. It got to be 130 degrees in the shade by one o'clock. So we did all our training by one. After that, we took classes under the trees uh, because of the heat. But uh, every day we carried a, a rifle, a pack, a helmet. And uh, no matter where we went, we carried all that stuff. So it was this continual exercise. I think I just started to blossom, and I never left the uh, the mess all full. I, you know, I just hungry all the time. <laughs> so I put on fifteen pounds, and that was a blessing because I needed and strengthened. And then we we did hikes of five miles, ten miles. The ten milers were always uh, uh, at at a fast pace. I, I'm, I'm struggling with what the name of those those attempt to, and then we eventually went on a 20 mile hike. But I found out that I could, no matter what happened, what kind of a hike, I could just keep lifting them up and putting them down. And I found I had stamina that I had no idea that I had. I just could keep going, no matter what. My toes would be bloody by the end of the 20 mile hike, but I could keep going. So I learned to be strengthened, and I had stamina that prepared me for combat. After that, I was sent to the University of Florida, and uh, uh, I was only there three months before they decided they needed all these 18-year-olds. It was now 1944, and D-Day is going to show up. We never got involved in D-Day, but they needed all the young guys. So they sent us to the 94th Infantry Division. They just cut the whole program after three months. <laughs> so... Uh, that was kind of a blow, but we got there and then they sprinkled us throughout a 15,000 man division. I never saw any of them except one guy after that. And until uh, maybe after the war, I saw a few. So we train, now we're training in a H company, which is heavy weapons. Now H company is a, uh, is, is a heavy weapons company, but every battalion has three uh, companies that are infantrymen. They carry rifles. In, the, in heavy weapons, we have two machine gun, heavy machine gun platoons and a heavy mortar platoon. So we're not riflemen, but we, we are heavy weapons. And I was in a heavy machine gun platoon. There's six guys in the platoon, basically a sergeant, a first gunner. He carries a huge 30-pound tripod. The second gunner carries the... Uh, 30-pound water-cooled 
machine gun. And then there's three guys carrying ammo. And they, we also carry a rifle. The, the first and second gunner, uh, they've got heavyweights, so they just carry pistols. We carry rifles to protect them and provide ammunition. I was number three in the squad. So, and I had a wonderful sergeant, uh, uh, John Lyons, and we had a wonderful captain, Captain George K. Wood, marvelous man, uh, giant of a guy. And we had a good platoon. The first guy, our first gunner was a, I think it was from West Virginia, a Southern guy who sort of, and he was a really nice guy. The second guy was from Western Pennsylvania. He was from the coal regions. And uh, he had a, kind of a nasty mouth, but he wasn't a bad person. And uh, then there's me, and then uh, the next fella is, he was a busted, Master Sergeant or First Sergeant. Never found out why, but his name was Vince Lamparella. And as time went on, he became my guard duty buddy. Uh, the last guy was uh, Jerry Driscoll, who was, a, I call him a ne'er-do-well. He, all he lived for was gambling and drinking. <laughs> but uh, that's the kind of guy. Now, our, our company had people from all walks of life. It was just unbelievable. I thought when I got into this place, they they were playing craps on each end of the table when I first got there, at each end of the barracks. But uh, they were from all walks of life, wonderful guys, just an amalgam of people. And especially the Southern boys, they all knew how to shoot. They already had (laughs) shot on. I never saw a rifle really before. Little Jim, though, our machine gun was uh, built as a, a design from 1917, World War One. Oh. Germans were all 1942. We were not prepared for that. When I was in basic training, we used a, a, a 1989 uh, rifle, uh, a, a British Enfield rifle. We didn't even have the regular... M1 carbine uh, rifle that the that were ready for the uh, infantrymen. They all trained on us. We had these old rifles. Now they're bold action, and I learned to shoot pretty well. I got maybe a seventy-five percent score. It makes you a marksman, but I was not a sharpshooter or anything like that. But what I bring this whole story up is because uh, the. Uh, The, our, our riflemen had the M1, which is semi-automatic, and the Germans have to do the bold action. Every time they, they shoot, they have to put the bolt, and then they have to aim again. But our guys could walk across the field with the rifle on their hips, all of them just shooting, shooting, pulling the trigger. And so they, the Germans had to keep down. So we had a big advantage there. But uh, Were you the one holding the... What's that? Were you the one holding the machine gun or the semi-automatic? No, I, was, I'm, I have a pack frame and I have a, uh, a, a two ammo boxes on there and I have a light uh, carbine. 
I don't have the heavy, uh, it's semi-automatic though, but it's not a big heavy thing like the infantry men were carrying. So that's how we were armed. Uh, we trained as a unit uh, with the 94th. Now we're figuring how to move a machine gun and put it in position and that sort of thing. So we did that kind of training. And then uh, time to go overseas. Uh, I think it's an interesting story to t tell you about that. We uh, were told what we should take with us. And we put all the stuff that they told us on our bunks. And then they... After we did that, we had to put that in our duffel bag. And the only thing we could wear was a pair of shorts. Okay. And everything else was to be burned by the, by the supply sergeant. And they went on anything else to go. I don't know how guys got cameras overseas, but some did. But nonetheless, that's what it was done. So anyway, I had a, happened to have a little cut in between one of my toes uh, and uh, I kept one sock on for that and I was going up to the latrine and uh, the captain happened to be sitting on the fence there and he went, asked me why I got the sock on. I told him why and he told me, go, go take it over to the, 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 the thing that's burning, okay? I thought he wouldn't mind me going to the latrine first and uh, coming back to do that. And as soon as I walked towards the latrine, he said, soldier, where are you going? I said, well, I was gonna go to the latrine first. So anyway, I had to take it off and or get it burned. I got punished for that. <laughs> the next day, the last day in Camp McCain, Mississippi, I was assigned to clean the urinals. Oh no. Can you imagine we're leaving this place and we have to clean the yellow off the urinals? <laughs> I had something called Bon Abbey and a rag. And uh, that, that was pretty much it. So I'm rubbing, 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 and it's not coming off. I have to use my fingernails to get this <laughs> stuff off. And, I, and it was about four other guys doing the same thing, but it took forever to do it. Can you imagine going to eat dinner, you know, how much you washed your hands and still smelled? Oh, no. <laughs> that, that I, I was upset mainly because uh, uh, I would learn to revere Captain K. Wood, but that's, I got punished twice, and both times I got latrine duty, but only once from him. So it was time to go overseas. Got a train and we went up to Erie, Pennsylvania and over to Camp Shanks, New York. It was a camp on just north of New York City where we were going to debark on a ship. And there we practiced uh, climbing down a rope ladder, which is what we're going to have to do the overseas. Uh, I'd never had a beer and he decided to go to the PX and drink a beer. I, I'd never smoked or drank or anything. So... I went over by myself at the, to the PX. There was nobody else around for some reason, a couple of people, but none, nobody I knew. So I drank this beer. I, I, I didn't know why anybody drank this stuff. It tasted awful to me. But when I got up, I was, couldn't walk straight. <laughs> so that's why I was happy that no one was around. <laughs> so that was my last beer for a long time. That was another step. So then now we're getting on the ship. 
They, they, we had one night in, in New York City. I don't know what we did, but we had one night to tour around on it. And the next thing we're, and our particular uh, battalion was assigned guard duty on the ship. And it turns out it's the Queen, Elis Queen uh, Elizabeth. I think it was number one. And uh, it goes, it takes five days to get there. And no, no submarine can even come close to going as fast. And it's still tacked, even so, so they wouldn't get a direct shot. And we you know, took only five days to get there. But while we're uh, while we're on the on the dock loading up, it took I don't know several days to get fifteen thousand people on the ship. Uh, we got a a ditty bag from the Red Cross. We got shaving stuff and so forth. And guess what? A little New Testament. I still have it. This New Testament has a letter from Franklin D. Roosevelt commending us to read the scripture that been helped many men over the years get solace. And so anyway, uh, that was that was a, a, a pleasure. I kept that thing. I'm going to digress a little bit because when we're overseas in a foxhole, we we. Uh, found out one day everybody kept their letters in this pocket plus our new testament plus our little packet of toilet paper and we would sit around wondering whether that would stop a bullet so this is just chatter no one really thought it would but nonetheless that was uh, where we kept our stuff i have a, a pouch still have it that was used for keeping the toilet paper and I show it to people and I ask them what it's what it's for and nobody has ever guessed it except my son-in-law he broke the thing after I, I showed that up at the World War II uh, weekend in Reading so anyway we're <clears throat> we're overseas in England we land in Scotland that ship land up there where it almost made. It can't get to any dock, so we got off and uh, uh, they ferried us to the land and uh, we started traveling down to England where we're gonna be in the base for about three weeks. Western, southwestern England, a place called Chippenham. And there uh, on the way down, the British people, at, when we'd stop at a station, they would feed us. That happened a couple of times. But another episode there was uh, shocking. Uh, we uh, we saw at one station uh, a, a Negro American soldier walking with a white girl. And I, my, my best friends, these Southern boys I loved, they went berserk. They had never seen anything like that before, and, and I was I, I was I had never seen it either. But it was a shocking thing to see those guys that that I loved to go just ape swearing and cursing and everything was sad. So that was a big shock. Anyway, we go down there. We're living in a tent city, and uh, we go for the five mile hike, the ten mile hike, and a twenty mile hike because we've been several weeks where we on trains and not doing any exercise. We did that and then it's time where we went to London and uh, 
we got a, a one two night pass to London, and that's where we saw one of these V bombs. Not third saw heard a V bomb come over, and it it's a there are different versions, but there's one that has a little engine to it that has a timer, and when it gets to its target, the timer turns off the engine and it comes down. So if you hear the putt, 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 you know it's still going somewhere. Once it stops, uh, it's coming down and somebody's in trouble. So we we heard one of those. And then we went back and uh, got together and started going for the ships at South Stanton. We put on troop ships at night. And I think just in one night, we crossed over into uh, France. <clears throat> Got another episode to tell you on, on, the, on the ship. Before we got on the ship, we had some training where we they had uh, soldiers dressed as Germans showing how they, with their machine gun, how they attack. And in addition, they have a, uh, a display of German weapons. That's when I found out all the German machine guns are 1942, ours is 1917. I got upset and I read, wrote a letter to my father. That was the first letter I sent from overseas and my lieutenant, uh, uh, what's the word? He, uh, he read it and uh, they, they, the officers read all the letters and wrote their name on it that they had done it. But anyway, he saw what I wrote and he wasn't happy about that. So on the way over, he comes into this room where we're to jam together, and I and he's looking for latrine duty people, and uh, the, the way they get volunteers is they they go you you and you that's how they they volunteer. But anyway, I got on latrine duty again, so I'm going to tell you another story. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> the latrine is a box on the deck. And it's so long, it can't be straight. It's at an angle across the deck. It has about eight holes in it. It's maybe two feet high and a couple of feet wide. And at one end, there's a hole. And I have a pole with a piece of wood across. And I pushed all the excrement out overseas. That's before we had to. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the current people worrying about the ocean. <laughs> so that was a messy thing. That was my second punishment. That's my last punishment. So, so we get to uh, uh, Utah Beach, and it's covered with ships that are sunk. The soak stacks are sticking out uh, from the D-Day battles, and uh, there's other other ships uh, bringing things to shore from the bigger ships. So. We have to climb down a ladder, rope ladder, and you got your pack on, full field pack on, and your rifle, and you're climbing down the ladder. Now the ladder goes down to a landing ship down below. So you're climbing down, I, I'm hanging on for dear life, and I'm looking down, and I see that this rope goes over, to, bends over into the ship, and two guys are holding the end of the ladder. And so I go down, and I also notice that this little landing craft is banging into the big ship. Bang, bang, and it's rocking, 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 banging, banging. 
And if you fall down there, you're done. So that was scary. I get down to the bottom. How am I going to get off to this rocking boat? Well, the guy said to jump. So they caught me in, in their arms. And, and uh, another Navy guy got me into a bench, and then we, we landed there. Now I'm going to do some summaries here now. They, we spent uh, from S September 1944, this is 90 days after D-Day, we spent from there till pretty close to uh, January. Uh, containing some Germans in two submarine ports at Lorient and Saint Nazaire. They're on the coast, the Brittany coast. The uh, what's the name of the beaches where we landed? What's that? Is it Utah Beach? Or? Oh, no, yeah, those are the beaches, but the, that area is is different. This is Brittany is a different province than that, and it's on the Atlantic. And the Germans had six five or six or submarine ports there. Now, it's interesting that at this time, time when we get there, we have already figured out how to stop the U-boats out in the middle of the Atlantic. Did you ever know that, that the, the U-boats uh, were sinking ships like crazy out there? But we, we took merchant ships and put decks on them and had airplanes flying off them, flying around looking for submarines and dropping bombs on them. And we, the Germans quit, and we we sank so many of them this in that past year that they weren't doing it. But still, submarines that were a danger now around Britain. So these things, and after we, after D-Day, when our army broke through and drove the Germans back up at the Belgian and and Germany, uh, the Germans retreated. 60,000 men to protect those. Now we have only 15,000 and they had 35 battalions of artillery. So our captain says, we're not going in after them, which was a good thing. Um, we had some episodes there that I can tell you about, but uh, pretty much not a lot happened there. We had our first casualties. We had uh, my first experience with artillery and I'll tell you that story. Well, I'm just generally saying that we we had a lot of interesting things that happened, but uh, not a lot of fighting. I think maybe we had 100 casualties in four or five months. Uh, and we actually had a, a, a prisoner exchange with the Germans. But we never attacked them. It's all the rifle companies were out there uh, patrolling and getting in the fights with the Germans. Um, Quick question. Yeah. Um, you, I remember uh, World War II weekend. You mentioned that you were a either a messenger or a runner at one point, and you had a story about. Yeah, that. that's that's later. I'll, 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 okay. I'll get to that, yeah. but I'll just tell you a couple of little things that happened there worth noting. Uh, we no sooner got to this this area than the uh, captain sent the whole uh, company up to the front line but he kept two squads back around, about a mile back uh, around his headquarters. And uh, it was September and I looked around and I found a slit trench. We had relieved the 6th Armored Division, so they must have dug this, this, this hole. 
and it's all hedgerows. So this is up against the hedgerows. Hedgerows are maybe up to your shoulder. So when you're living in the hedgerow country, you have to learn to have the hedgerow stoop. You have to walk <laughs> around like this. <laughs> Other little gems, uh, the privates anyway, uh, we would, uh, if we saw another private, we would go, Heil Hitler in case we lose, but that was another joke. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how we lived in the hedgerows. And uh, so there was a slit trench. I said to myself, that's where I'll go if uh, if anything happens. And I I laid down on my shelter half and then my blankets. I, it was September. I didn't have to. I had all my clothes on. I didn't have to cover up. I no sooner laid down there and the German artillery started pounding this area. And I'm telling you, I was so scared. I flew into that ditch and I tried to climb into the helmet and I'm so scared. I'm praying to Jesus, save me, save me, save me. I'll do anything if you'll only save me. I'll just, uh, I, I, over and over and over until the artillery stopped. And uh, I tell everybody at that moment, I was a useless soldier. Now, I had not been afraid of artillery till that moment. I, my fear was that I would run away. I'd be scared. But I didn't do that. But I, I was really scared of artillery. But that prayer undoubtedly helped me because two things happened. From that moment on, I was in constant fear that this is going to happen again. All soldiers have the same thing. They have to live in a constant, I call it every living minute, breathing uh, fear for eight months. But uh, another thing happened at that moment. I, From then on, I was able to do my best. That's the title of my book that I wrote. The best that I could do. No matter what they asked me, I was able to do it. In spite of the fear, and I and I, I'm positive that that prayer gave me courage. They gave me what I needed. So I just wanted you to know that that's the first time that the Holy Spirit was really working for me. So that uh, that was an interesting thing. There's a lot of other stories I can tell you about. There would take days, but eventually we. Uh, uh, the Battle of the Bulge started, the Germans uh, counterattack. We thought the Germans were beat. The Germans had been planning for months to counterattack. And this is in Belgium and Luxembourg. They had lined up 27 divisions and we had put four divisions there, two of them which were experienced but had been in the Hurtgen Forest battles and they were resting there. We also had a, a, a 99th division, which was only there five weeks. And then we had a, a very experienced second infantry division there, four against 27. The Germans have 10,000 in a division, we have 15. So it's not quite as bad, but it's a big difference. Where they started with like a thousand guns uh, firing, and that was five o'clock in the morning in the, uh, December 16th, the Battle of Bulls starts. Now, I want you to know, we've been back there. And those people still uh, celebrate the, that, that time when the Americans came to their rescue. The, uh, 
we, we went there in the winter. I didn't want to go in the winter, but that, that turns out it was the time to go. And we got a group and we went over and we were taking bus rides all around that area. And uh, we found out the people there love us and still do. Two, two guys from uh, uh, Luxembourg came to visit us and they, they took us all through the battlefields. And by the way, in the meantime, our bus rides are visiting all sorts of villages. And, and they have 40 villages today. Once a year at that time, they have a vigil at five o'clock in the morning when the battle starts. They still celebrate that and we've been over to that. But uh, that's the Battle of Bulge. Um, what happened was that the, we stopped them by the 28th. Then General Patton was in Europe, in uh, France, and he sent his army up after uh, he told Eisenhower he could do that. And, and eventually the, we got the 101st Airborne to go into Bastogne. They were surrounded but they stopped the Germans, the Germans had to go around them, and so did the other divisions, they fought well. And the, we stopped them mainly because we kept holding them up. Just a couple of days, they were trying to get to the coast, which are now based where supplies are coming to Antwerp, which is a big place. Up until there, everything, all the supplies came through the beaches which are, you know, quite a distance from where the battles are now. And uh, uh, so the Germans were trying to get there, but they didn't get there. The guys stopped them. So that's the Battle of Bozen, a few words. So uh, we thought we would immediately be sent to the Battle of the Bulge, but uh, they were bringing divisions over from England, and it would take two days to relieve us to trade. And for a while, uh, we didn't. Uh, we, we weren't sent. They sent them quickly to the battle, and then uh, an accident happened. A German submarine sank one of the ships of the 66th Division, which was coming over from England, and the uh, 66th Division uh, lost a lot of men. So they decided bring them and take over what we're doing, and we were sent to the Battle of the Bulge. And the Battle of Bulge, uh, after it was stopped, uh, I think we lost 5,000 men stopping it. And then they pushed the Germans back to Germany. And that took 15,000 men. And that went all the way through January. So we had moved up on the 1st of the Badger. And a, another interesting thing happened there. We went by train from Brittany up to above Paris to a place called Reims. And uh, we got off there and we were put on trucks. I didn't know it then, but there was a a, a big problem because one of the divisions that was going up to help Patton from uh, an area I'll describe in a minute, uh, they had sent two regiments and they only had one, one holding the line. So we spent the, the next 13 hours in a truck with no lights and no stopping on January 1, uh, just freezing. It was a, it was the coldest winter they had, and it was just, all we could do was uh, stamp our feet and wiggle our toes. We couldn't move, and we were jammed in a truck. 
Somebody had to relieve themselves. People, someone had to hold them over the tailgate, and uh, it was pretty hard time. We went past Verdun, a huge cemetery from World War One, and then we saw body bags lined up along the side of the road, like forty body bags piled up about three high. That was pretty scary when you're knowing you're going into combat. And uh, but we made it, and when we got off, it was just uh, the cobblestone streets were covered with ice. And I was very fortunate that again I got in reserve, and I got into a house that night. A lot of guys said to go right into the front line, uh, but I got out of that for a couple of days. So uh, that was our introduction to. Uh, something we call the Siegfried switch line. Uh, there's the Moselle. Yeah, the Moselle River comes from France and goes into Germany at an angle just below Luxembourg. And then down south of that is France. We This uh, battle place where we were was just inside Germany and it had the, the the river, the Moselle on its left, and the Sara River over here came up at an angle and hit the uh, Moselle. So there was a triangle along the Moselle, the Sara River, and the French border. Uh, so that that was uh, the area that our group was sent to. Now they they were the upper command, the corps commander told us our general that. We don't want you guys to get too involved here. Uh, so you're only allowed to have one battalion attack <clears throat> at a time. Uh, so our camp commander had one battalion attack today, uh, another one tomorrow, and a third one tomorrow. Now there's three regiments. They even all have three battalions, so that's nine battalions. I think I was like the eighth battalion that I was allowed to attack. And that was on a, a little uh, German village by the name of Sins. You have to know this whole battlefield, there were like 12 villages, all full of Germans. They had minefields around them. They had uh, tank ditches in front of the area. They had uh, bunkers. Uh, we saw a gigantic one uh, on a tour that we went, but there were like 80 concrete pillboxes uh, and that's what the 94th was up against. But our guys were doing really well. Each one of those battalions had uh, taken several uh, villages. The enemy uh, decided they needed help, so they got a, 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 a unit from one of their armored divisions to attack, and they took some of the villages back, and we got... Uh, a, a unit from the Eighth Armor, our own, and we took the stuff back again. And uh, <clears throat> but all the time, you know, people are dying, walking into minefields, and so forth. So I can remember this story where uh, we were getting ready to uh, <clears throat> attack Sins, and we uh, were left off. Uh, they took us in trucks to a certain place, and uh, it was snowing, and we were walking up past the village, and the village was practically dilapidated, but we had captured it, and we t 
turned right down a road and there were about a dozen dead Germans there. They'd been attacking and killed. We walked past that through a, a field, put about a foot of snow and we got into a wooded area. And uh, that's where we're headed. Uh, as we got in there, it's a little harder to walk because there's branches underneath the uh, snow. And you had to make sure that you didn't trip over that. But I tripped anyway, and it turns out when I was getting up, uh, I accidentally knocked the snow off a dead German. I tripped over a frozen German. And for a 19-year-old, that was another shock. But you didn't, you couldn't dwell on it. You just had to keep following your way up. So we got up to the top of the hill, the edge of the woods, and we could see Sins down below. And we basically found, uh, fortunately, two holes. And we, they must have been dug, we think, by the Germans because they had little, they even had the, uh, oh, they had logs on top of them. And uh, inside there were German ammunition, empty German ammunition boxes for the floor. It wasn't too bad. Now you could get four guys in each of these holes. Uh, each of the two squads that were there had six. So with two people on guard duty from each squad, there was enough to, to rotate. Now, we've been doing this before, but it turns out that in the infantry, you're on guard duty two hours, all four, around the clock. You never get eight hours sleep. So that's one challenge. And I always say you never even get the four hours sleep because the guys come and wake you up early to make sure you come out and leave them. And then when you go back to get yourself wrapped up in your blankets and so forth, you lose a few more minutes. But that, that, that we did that all, all, all the time that we were in Europe, two hours on, four hours off. Uh, I don't know how many days we were there, but somebody decided that it was so cold that we'd have one man from each squad go back to company headquarters in a village about a mile away. Uh, so I, Sergeant Lyons said uh, the first gunner should go to first night, the second gunner, and I'm number three. I went on the third trip back. And when I got back there, the first sergeant says, you're getting a break. You're going to get a 40-hour rest. Now, I... Uh, got on a truck with a bunch of other guys when we went back to France and there was a big tent there. It was, it was actually a French camp, a fort or whatever. But uh, we went into this big tent and I got my one shower in six months. Uh, and then I had to biggest meal you could ever, I think they dusted me off with something. I don't know what they had in those days. To, and then uh, they took my clothes and washed them and somehow got them dry. I don't know how they did that. But anyway, I had two nights there, got my hair, shaving a haircut. I even think there was a USO show there. Don't remember that, but I know I had the biggest dish of pie and ice cream I'd ever seen. <laughs> so that was, that was a good time. I wrote some letters. And uh, now I want you to know that we did wash ourselves, but you, this is how you, if you get a little bit of time back at company headquarters, so send a few guys back. And uh, 
they would uh, give you a helmet full. Our, our helmets sat on top of a helmet liner. You had a helmet liner, which had straps inside that fit your hat. But this was like a bowl. You got a, a hot water in, a, in, in your helmet. You shaved, got all your little hairs in there, and then you started taking your clothes off in zero degree weather. We take our clothes, our shirt off, and that means your field jacket, your you know your overcoat, your field jacket, your long johns, just to wash the top of your body. Put that all back on, and then you start taking your boots and things off to, to get the rest of your body. It took forever. Of course, the water's not hot anymore, but it's also not cold. That's the way we lived. Uh, one other little thing is that we always wore two pairs of socks. At least I did. My mother knitted two pair. I had two GI ones, and you you kept two pair, two double pairs on, and the other pairs under your shirt, because in the daytime they would sweat, and you they lose the insulation. So you put them under, and your body heat would actually dry them off. Now, there were some divisions that they made sure people did that every night. We didn't do it quite every night. But guess what? You never got to wash the socks or anything of your clothing forever. Oh, <laughs> so gosh. That's, that's how we lived. Wow. Anyway, it was time to go back uh, from the rest area. And the captain sent me... Uh, gave me two replacements and told me to take him to uh, uh, Sergeant Paraback. He was our platoon sergeant. I hadn't seen him all the time I was overseas. Uh, while we were up on that hill there looking at sins for so many days, uh, I I didn't see any officers or anything. Our, our, our lieutenant was wounded, so we didn't see him. I went to see him power back and he was in a big hole covered with logs and he gave me a, a water walkie talkie and he says and showed me how to use it. He says, Now you're gonna join the second platoon, not the first platoon that you were in, and you're gonna be their guide. So all of a sudden I'm taken out of my squad and for a different job. And this is how I got into being a runner. But at this point I'm a guide. Uh it's nighttime and it starts to rain, so I put on my poncho. He told me to follow the telephone wire. We did have telephone wires. That's our main community. It should follow that. I held that in one hand and followed it that way and walked up pitch black because it's raining and dark in the woods. And but I and I'm I'm worried that the, if they have guards, I don't know what the password is. Nobody tells me that. But they weren't just standing guard, so <laughs> it was a joke. I did find the lieutenant. He was a nice guy. And uh, not too long after that, uh, by the way, I forgot, a, uh, what, I, I forgot a, a little story that fits in here. When I came back from the uh, rest area, G Company, where my buddy John Gordy from back in the States, was standing there and he said, we're attacking sins in the morning. Now he's in a rifle company and he he's scared. And he said, uh, I'm gonna have to be Superman to get through this. 
uh, he gave his Mickey Mouse watch to a uh, one of the clerks that's not going to be in the Battle and G Company. I even have to go back further. Back in the States, G Company was next to H Company that I was in. And so Gordy was the only guy from the ASTP, or the uh, Florida and all those places, basic training that I got to see. We used to pal around, so we became friends. At, you know. But over there, I hadn't seen him till that day. And it, it turns out two days later, he was uh, missing an action. I got letters from my mother asking if I knew anything about John Gordy. I, all I know is he's missing. His mother is contacting my mother and there's all kinds of messages going back and forth. I have one of her letters, Mrs. Gordy. And after the war, I did go to see her as John was eventually found and he's buried over there. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm now with the second platoon and the, our artillery starts firing. Uh, that's the beginning of the attack in the morning. And then we know the Germans are gonna fire back. So we, the Lieutenant said, let's all get in this ditch. It wasn't a very deep ditch, but we got in it. And uh, uh, the most of the shells went over. One piece of shrapnel landed right here. And I showed it to the Lieutenant and he said, well, we gotta find a better place than this. So I said, I know where there's some holes up in the front of this wood where I've been before. So we, in the middle of the night, I led them up there and I found the holes by falling into one of them. And uh, so the lieutenant and I got in there and we, and the next hole was an artillery observer and we were hearing that G Company was doing pretty good in, in Sins. And uh, then uh, I got a call on my walkie-talkie and I said, the guy said, come over to the edge of the woods. And he said, you see that building down there? And it says, it's blackened. I said, yes. He says, well, that's where you'd have come. So I told the lieutenant, and uh, now it's it's past dawn. It's daylight. And this rain had melted the snow, which is February. I couldn't believe that, but it happened. So we, we, lined, we walked down the hill. And I saw some black boxes on the ground, and I said to Leonard, Lieutenant, those look like mines. I'd never actually seen one before. And he said, yes, they do. So we lined up, and I led that walk right through a minefield into this building, which was a, uh, a barn, but it was stone barn. And the guy that had called me said, you weren't supposed to come till tonight. He forgot to tell me that. So I figured I really goofed up. But my captain was there and I said, Captain Kaywood, uh, I brought the second platoon. He didn't say anything to me. He turned to the battalion commander and said, I got four more machine guns. So goof up, whatever. I got them there early. <clears throat> now you have to reflect on this thing. If it hadn't rained, the snow wouldn't have melted when the seen the mines. If I had come at night, I wouldn't have seen the mines. So what's happening here? You wonder about this. Uh, when we were up on the hill previously, there was a sniper that was shooting at us. So where was he when we're walking down there? And in addition, we had heard from this uh, uh, artillery observer, we just heard his voice, that 
F Company had tried to attack the woods above, behind Sins, and the German artillery drove them off. So where was the German artillery when we walked down in broad daylight, lined up like you're not supposed to be doing? I, I think, this, again, the Holy Spirit is working the overtime again. So that's part of my story. Uh, I don't know that there's a, a lot more to tell you except that the captain said, come with me. And so I stayed with the captain and he made me a runner now. I'm a guy, now I'm a runner. So we go into a, a, the next basement there. It's in the rear of Sins. And we've captured most of it in the first day. And uh, he says, uh, I want you, I think it got to be nighttime. He says, I want you to go find out where the second platoon is and, and see how they're doing. So I go outside. And the Germans are shelling the place. And I have to go down the side of the building. And I did. I found one of our guys outstanding guard there and took me down in the basement where they were. And I found out they're okay. But while I'm going and coming, I hear something called uh, screaming memes. They're actually German rockets. The Germans have a gadget that fires a bunch of rockets all at one time. They're called Nebelwerfers, I think. And they make a one really weird sound. It's a vibrating noise. I tell people that it sounded to me like a giant took railroad tracks and banged them together and they really made all this noise. I'll walk through all that stuff and back. And I told the captain, everything's fine. So uh, the next day, he uh, sends me to go find the first platoon, now my platoon. And I have to go down a road, the main supply road coming into Sins for our guys. And I got to get to a woods called uh, Van Ho, no. I'll, I'll think of it. Undersea Bush, it was called. But I go outside and I see that the Germans are lobbing shells on this road I got to go on. And uh, I looked it over and I saw on the German side of the road, there's a little wall about this big. The Germans are all up on the hill. They can certainly see me. So I take a run and leap and jump right and land right against that wall. And I wait for another shell to go over. And the first time I, I got just tensed up and then when the next shell went over, I ran again. But after that, I just waited for one shell. And then I ran again and flopped down. I did that about, I'd say, eight times, and I came to a house. I, I knew that if I got that far, they wouldn't be able to see me. For some reason, they didn't shoot at me. I have no idea. But I got through the shells. and uh, But when I got there, there were four dead Germans in a hole, all dead. And they're covered with blood. It's a horrible situation. And they smell. It's just unbelievable. I had to get out of there. And so I kept running, and uh, I, I was now hidden by the woods, and I found this Sergeant Colvin. He's in the wooded area. Now, he's in a what I call a, a, a bunker. Uh, if you're in an area where you, uh, where you can't dig down because there's water or it's too hard to dig, sometimes you have to use dynamite to, to get through the crusted uh, cold uh, ground 
But in, in this case, it's because the water level was too high. You build a, a little log cabin three logs high and cover it with logs. So if a shell comes and hits up in the trees, the shrapnel comes down and it doesn't get to you because you got the logs there. So I saw him in one of those and I crawled in with him and I asked him how the, the company was doing there, the platoon, and he said they were all right. I could have gone up further in the woods and found my squad, but uh, I thought I'd done enough. I there, everyone was up. So I had to now go back through the the uh, the artillery again. I did the same thing on the way back. And I got to the captain and, and told him everybody was okay. So he was happy. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, they c captured Sins, but they hadn't captured the woods behind it. And they sent out four groups of 25 men, including one with John Gardy in it. And uh, there were German tanks in this place. And that's why it's F Company couldn't get in there. They, this time they sent six tank destroyers up there. Now, tank destroyers are not tanks. They're tracked vehicles and they have a cannon. The German tanks got out behind them and knocked out all six of them. And they, three of the groups were outflanked by those tanks and those guys ran. And after the battle, I uh, I guys telling me that the only ones that got out of there are the ones that ran away. But the captain had uh, John Gordy's platoon in a certain area, and I was in this basement when it happened. John Gordy was the radio man for that lieutenant, and the lieutenant said that my position's becoming untenable, and he wanted to withdraw. And the, Colonel said no, he had to move somewhere else. And the next message coming back was uh, the Germans are shooting in the in our foxholes. And that's when John was killed. Uh, I thought he died needlessly. That captain, had, lieutenant had been able to retreat. It would have been a big improvement. But anyway, that was a sad affair. So it, it, we lost so many men there that the next day we we left the place and we went to a reserve area. Uh, while there, uh, we had a critique of the battle and the fact that our bazookas didn't seem to help with the uh, the German tanks. Our guys were the infantry was told to go in this woods, find the tanks, and use those the uh, they called them torpedoes on the treads and knocked them out, but they never got close to them. And uh, it was just a sad thing all the way around. So anyway, I got called to uh, the captain's office and he wants to uh, make me a, a uh, recon sergeant. Whenever the captain goes out in the beginning to, to look over a place where he's going to put his men, takes the recon sergeant with him who carries a binoculars and they figure out where things are going and then sometimes he sends the recon sergeant guy back to get them the men and then he places them in where they're supposed to be but anyway 
I had, he had no sooner said, do you want to be that, than uh, I was about to say yes when uh, somebody comes at the door and uh, it's a medic and uh, he's calling for a private red yard. And uh, I asked the captain if I had to go. He said, yeah, you have to go. So this guy took me back to another building. Now it's still freezing out and it's freezing in the building. Tells me to take my shoes and socks off and uh, sit there. I left a little incident out when we came back to this reserved area. The first night, we all just flopped on the floor. It was nighttime. And the doctor came by and checked our feet. So we had to take our boots and socks off. And I, I felt him take my pulse behind my ankle. I don't know how he knew who had what or if what happened, but anyway, I was apparently called and told to sit on a bench, take my shoes and socks off and sit there and wait. It was freezing. I put my socks on the floor and my feet on top and I'm sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. If my feet weren't frozen before, they were getting there pretty soon. So another guy comes by and he said, what are you doing here? I told him and then he leaves and eventually the doctor comes and uh, he checks my feet. He doesn't say anything to me. And he uh, sends me to a hospital. I got in an ambulance and I'm taken back to France and Thionville Hospital. The hospital is a, a hospital for uh, gas patients, but there are no gas patients. So they it's mostly all trench foot, they call it, frozen toes. So that's where I went and uh, put us on uh, our beds who are not supposed to get up. And we do exercises in the day, putting our feet up on the wall, putting them on the bed, hanging them over the bed to try and increase the circulation. My, my next, we're getting juice and stuff fed without getting out. <laughs> so we had it made in the shade. <laughs> and. Uh, I was there uh, maybe three weeks, and I think the last week I was better enough that uh, I even got to see a movie or a play, a play in France, in Thionville. Then I was sent to a convalescent hospital, and my whole squad was there ahead of me. So they were in that place where there was a high water table, and uh, so they all had the same thing. Convalescent hospital there was nothing to do there, except uh, watch uh, a train yard. Where I'd never seen this before. It was a slanted rails. They took box cars and and sent them down, and then they took another one and they they loaded up trains. They would bang and clamp together. That was our excitement. <laughs> but there was one other exciting. Every Monday morning, they uh, took us in a place where the Doctors examined us and decided whether we're going back to duty. That's called a return to duty, an RTI. And uh, we got by two of those. So the third week uh, we're, we're there and the, he says, uh, everybody's getting RTI. So that means you're going back to your outfit. Nobody really wanted to go after, but we have one guy, a joker, Kazakowski, he has it all planned that the minute they say he's an RTI, he's going to say, I have a pain. 
and, the, and he's gonna, and the doctor's going to ask him where, and he says up and right. Well, he means his heart, but I don't know what up and right had to do with that. But the doctor ignored him. Everybody went back. <laughs> so now we're sent to another place. Now, by the way, another three weeks there, and then we go to a, a repo depot. It's a replacement de depot. Their replacement depot where new soldiers are brought over. I think they had a system where they took uh, men and they trained them for eight weeks how to shoot a rifle and they shipped them over. And then they go to a repo depot and they'd be sent to different places to fill in where there were casualties. This was a nice place. There was uh, movies there and uh, book places to read. I even went outside to a, to a dinner on Easter and... Uh, but I thought I should, when I got there, and, and my, I have letters, I have all my letters, my mother saved, and they think I'm thinking I should be out of there in a couple of days to get back to my open. But no, another three weeks went by. And guess what? By this time, it's uh, the end of April. The war is almost over. And uh, eventually, I got on a train. They took me to Germany, and then they took me back. And then finally, they took me up to the Ruhr. You had to go up to Belgium, uh, Luxembourg and Belgium, and then cross the Rhine River. The 94th was put in there for, for uh, occupation duty. So I, occupation duty was interesting. Uh, we searched, beginning we searched houses. Uh, we'd uh, go to a house and a sergeant would knock on the door and read a, a a proclamation that we were allowed to search their houses. You go in and whoever's in the house gets the keys. They have all their keys in the kitchen and he goes around and every drawer, every closet, everything is locked. So he had to open all these things for us to, to search. But we went through that and we found a uniforms, propaganda stuff, cameras, anything that, that Hitler used or somebody could use to cause trouble, weapons, uh, anything Nazi, we took it back and dumped it on the bed. Uh, and then I thought they were gonna give the stuff back, but no, that just turned about these spoils. Everybody took something and shipped it home. The um, so that's what we did for I don't know how many weeks, a couple of weeks, and then I got we got posted to guard Germans. Now first we're uh, searching their houses. I I, I want to say that one couple of things we found was a, a a magazine just lying in a bedroom has a picture of the ugliest Jewish person, dirty whatever Russian person. And inside, it compares them to this beautiful, blonde German soldier. It's all propaganda. Those people had to live with that garbage all the time. <laughs> Another place uh, uh, had a, a pretty little uh, wooden box, which in, inside, I call them merit badges, but every one of them was a, a Hitler Youth a badge that uh, this lady's daughter had earned in the Hitler Youth. There was, all had a swastika on each little item. So we took that too. She wanted to keep it well. You know, you're not having Nazi stuff. So we not only took everything that had anything to do with Nazis, but 
we didn't personally do this, but they took the whatever uh, uh, government there was, city government or or town gov township government, they got rid of all the Nazis. Anybody who had been a, a, a part of the party was removed, and only people who had not been were allowed to govern the Germans after that. So uh, next step was uh, uh, guarding Germans. So we're searching houses, now we're guarding Germans. And uh, I got assigned to the, to the uh, bakery. There was the bakery, the butcher shop, and something called the, the, uh, the potato warehouse. Because food is essential, and while all of this is going on, a lot of the French and Russian prisoners are now released. Their, their encampments are found, and they're released, and uh, our army has to now feed these guys, but they're also a danger for the Germans. So the war's over, now we're on the German, German side guarding them. And uh, my post, as I said, was the bakery. The family lived above it, and the bakery was down below. And uh, we took turns doing that during the day. I'd show up on an early uh, tour of duty there, and all the cigarettes that had been used by the Americans, some little German guy was there picking them up and taking the papers off and saving the tobacco that was still useful. Uh, and. Uh, Another little gem was that some officers were coming in a jeep, parking near my station, and going across, a lieutenant would go out, or whatever officer would go across the street to a building that looked like a factory. And coming back, I never knew what that was. I call it the mystery jeep. Not, not right away, anyway. And then came Elfrieda Fink. Elfrieda Fink's a German daughter of, she's coming back, she tells me, from Nuremberg. Pretty well figured out that that's, that's, a, that's a really a, a center for the Nazis, Nuremberg. So uh, uh, I figured she at least was working for them. Now, so you, you have to know that the Germans are all returning to their places that are all bombed out, got no place to go, so they put them in displaced persons camps. So that's... Uh, a thing that have to learn about, and so they got no place to go. That places is a them. not every place, but the big cities are all destroyed. So she comes home, and uh, we get to talking from the upper window when I'm on guard duty, and I'm learning German words by this time. I had a couple uh, days when I got to go to town and look at stuff, uh, and and there's also something called. Uh, non-fraternization laws. We're not allowed to talk to any German. Well, that's kind of ridiculous because not only are we guarding them, but we also have a, 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 a Jeep tour around the farmers to protect them, to see if they're okay. And I went on one of those and we got to talk to Germans there. And the little girl was had a, a cowboy book, believe it or not, that she enjoyed it. And uh, I didn't even know if I was allowed to talk to her, but I did. So anyway, Elfrida invites me to come to dinner. So like a dummy, I did. 
I went back and got, after I was off guard duty, I went back there and I went to dinner. I put my rifle in the, they had a, a little uh, entryway, foyer you can call it. I put my rifle there and hung up my other stuff and went in the living room and her uh, aunt is playing uh, an organ and she's playing a flute and uh, they're singing Lutheran hymns, which I know some of those hymns, so I'm trying to remember some of the words and singing along. And after a while, then we go to dinner. We had a one egg, a piece of cabbage, and a slice of black bread. Now you have to know that bread in the, that, that was being made in those days for Germans had sawdust in it. But I'm positive the, the baker's not gonna be eating sawdust in his bread. So I had one piece of bread. I felt sorry for them at that point. And next thing you know, there's a knock on the door or the doorbell rings, I forget which. I thought, oh man, if that happens to be an American officer, I'm in big, big trouble. But Frida goes to the door and she brings in three young girls. They come through an archway like that and they all go Heil Hitler. They embarrassed the family because uh, I already told them a big lie. I told them that my mother came from Germany. I was covering myself. <laughs> and I picked Leipzig because I knew it was she was from Leipzig. <laughs> so I covered myself some, but now we got three Nazis coming in and they're just little girls and they're they're just a pain. Anyway, I wanted to get I, I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. <laughs> So, uh, and that's actually what happened. But before I, by the next time I'm on guard duty, I'm asking her, what is this building across the street? And she said, well, it's a, it's a, a, it's a factory, but it's also a, a place where you can buy silverware. And those officers, they're going over and buying this stuff. Is that called fraternization? I don't know, but, uh, can you make it out of there? So uh, I asked Frida Fink if she can help me, you know, get in over there. And so she has a friend in that place that comes to the window and they give the high sign that it's clear of American officers. And I went over there and I bought two uh, sets of silverware. Now, I'm a little naive. I think it's silver, and I think I got the, you know, but after I get home, I shift it home, figure it home, and Nancy tells me it's, it's a stainless steel. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It was, we, we, we used it. So that was pretty much the end of that because uh, we shipped out of there. I never saw Elfrida again. We went to Czechoslovakia. Beautiful ride down the Rhine. I think we we're on the Mains River and we we're on the Danube in boxcars. In my time in Europe, I think I was in boxcars about nine times. But this is this is a ride that you pay a lot of money today, <laughs> all the way to Czechoslovakia. And uh, we were uh, taken to a, a place, uh, well, I'll skip the one little story. We were taken to a place called Blatna, and it was in a Sokol. 
I didn't know what a soko was, but it seemed, seemed like a social place of some kind. I looked it up on you on uh, Google some time ago. It, the, the the Czechs had invented some kind of a program uh, in which you uh, you, you join this outfit, the soko, and you uh, you should get educated and you also exercise a combined physical improvement and mental. And it spread out all over Eastern Europe. But that's what was in. And we slept in this place and played volleyball with the kids and they were good. They, that they, did, they did a lot of that. Our best guys couldn't beat them. They were just incredibly good. But we had fun there. And there was a lot of time to exercise, go swimming, things like that. So we had great time. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, time to want to go home. Eventually, uh, our top officers left. Captain Kewu was assigned somewhere else. And we had parties when everybody left. And then our our non-coms left because they had been in the army longer. See, there was a point system that you had to learn. Uh, for every month you were in the service, you got a point. For every month you were in overseas, you got another point. So anybody had been in there long, they got a lot of points. Uh, I I think most everybody in the 94th, when I joined them, had already been training for a year. So they were, they had a lot of points. Anyway, we had, and I started to, have, they had parties and I started to sing songs and I, I enjoyed that a lot. We had a good time. I, I never, well, I'll, Singing is a different story, but anyway, eventually it's just a question of wanting to go home. Uh, we had uh, parades on, uh, on on VE Day. That was actually back in Germany, but also in VJ Day, we had another parade, this time in Pilsen. And uh, yeah. those are the exciting things. We were sent on, uh, we got tours uh and they had shows come over uh all, bob hope you name it those different people were over there and uh then uh what am i trying to say oh yes i got a furlough we were given furloughs and uh, they were random. Somebody had, I got one to Marseille and somebody else got one to Great Britain. And that's where my relatives are. So I switched with them and I signed up to go up to Scotland. So uh, I, I think it was a seven day deal by train. Uh, we had a couple of days in Paris and then uh, crossed over and went to Clydebank, Scotland. My Mother's family, there were 10 of them in it. And uh, I visited uh, her favorite sister, Bella. And then she took me to the oldest guy, Robert. He had a nicest home. And actually, when they decided I should stay there. And once you know, my two brothers went through this whole exercise as well. They were both overseas there. But uh, turns out every place we went, there was a party. And everybody else showed up. We'd go visit Uncle John, <laughs> and 
he had a house that the U.S. had made a prefabbed house that they sent over for him because his was bombed up there. They tried to bomb the shipyards there, and he lost his house. But it was interesting uh, that, that they, most of them worked the, for the Singer Saw Machine Company. They had a huge factory up there. And uh, we, we toured all that stuff. We saw Loch Lomond, and uh, it was a beautiful place, and so forth. And got to tour a lot and saw everybody. And eventually, they uh, sent, sent me home. But I forgot to tell you that the mail clerk became my buddy in the company, and he went with me. And he played the piano. His name was Willie Kraft. And I thought maybe he's a member of the Kraft family. I never found that out. But uh, he... He played uh, piano at some of the places, and we had a good time. So that was a wonderful time. <clears throat> After that, I was really just waiting to come home. <clears throat> and uh, finally, my numbers came up, and I was sent uh, home. Uh, went to a place called Schaffenberg, uh, near uh, Frankfurt, for a few weeks and then everybody went to a camp on, in, at La Harve and they were all named after cigarettes. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it was Chesterfield, Lucky Strike, and uh, we went to Herbert Tarleton. That was another, I was the camp that I was at. And uh, we were supposed to be there 48 hours. It was like three weeks, but eventually we did get on a ship and uh, it was the Vassar Victory. It was, uh, I think, uh, the first morning we were going down the channel. I was elected to work in KP in the kitchen, which was a good thing because that morning they made uh, eggs and they weren't cooked right. And everybody else got sick. They also had to, got seasick from being in the, in the channel. So by the time uh, the cooks ate, they didn't eat that stuff. They had soup or cereal or something. We were out in the in the Atlantic, and uh, ten days home, uh, coming to New York and seeing the Statue of Liberty. It was just a big thrill being home, and got on trains and headed up here to a Indian Town Gap, uh, where I was discharged. And uh, it was interesting that. I met my buddy, Weston Worst, uh, from high school there. He, uh, I thought he was wounded, and I thought he would be home by now, but anyway. This is a sidelight here, Weston Worst's experience. He was in the 95th Division. I didn't even know that he was right next to the 94th at one point, and he was wounded, and uh, he had a head wound. And they, they managed to get him out into a hole until the medics came and they put him on a jeep. Had four four uh, racks on it. They, they could take four patients at a time back to something called they called it the division clearing hospital. They're going to work on people and then ship them out. They found him uh, that he was paralyzed and blind. And uh, they operated and that he was still in that condition. So they sent him to Paris for a couple of weeks uh, to uh, 
of a hospital with French nuns and then eventually to England. And there a nurse tried to uh, move his legs. Two guys were holding him and uh, she was trying to pattern his legs. That didn't work. And eventually a, a different doctor came along, took him into a room and uh, looked a darkened room and looked in his eyes with a little flashlight. And and all he said, Bretson said, was that he said, they didn't get it all out. So he obviously saw no damage to his eyes. So they he had them operate again. They got more shrapnel out. There's still some there, but he recovered totally from the blindness and from the paralyzation, a miracle. I have to tell you a story, just unbelievable. And one of the interesting things is that his mother, who was the doctor, uh, didn't believe him that he was better. And uh, I, so I wrote her a letter. He had sent me his letter while I was in the hospital, and uh, he was. And he uh, told me his mother didn't believe him. So I sent her a letter and said, you should believe him because he says he's okay. I don't know what more I can tell you except that uh, I was discharged in, uh, let's see, January, about the 13th, I think, and uh, sent home. And uh, that was the end of the war for me. Oh. I don't know how much more you want me to tell you about. Oh, I think. Uh... Next, we'd like we had a question for Dar Darling. You had a question for Nancy. Oh, um, do you want to do this one? Yeah, yeah, I think we can do right, that one. Do you want to do this one first, and then we'll go into this one? Uh, uh, what what was it like back home during the war? You know, <clears throat> you know, as someone that was obviously not in World War Two, right? Like the combat. How was it? Back Everybody home? back home was very much in what was going on, everything that was going on. Um, I was just a young 12-year-old and uh, from a family of uh, six children. After dinner, my, we sat at the dinner table, had the radio turned on, and we all listened to the war news. I mean, you know, Every single one, old and young, so we knew what was going on. Um, we had some friends who were in the service, had stopped by to see my dad before he went off. And um, so we would think of them all the time. We had uncles in the service. One was gassed in the First World War, so um, we knew of soldiers and kind of knew what they had to endure. Um, my father wanted to go in the service. He had been in the First World War and um, had been in the Navy. So uh, even though he was uh, 43 uh, at the time, he went and uh, wanted to sign up and they said no. You're not only too old, even though he was in excellent condition, they said, you have too many children and we don't want losses like that. 
so they turned him down. But um, we were all involved in the war effort of collecting silver. We had little, uh, every stick of gum was wrapped with silver foil, and we would peel it from that stick of gum and start making little balls of silver, and they grew and they grew. Every time you could find anything anywhere, that went on that ball. And so it was kind of a little um, um, in a competition, how, how big is your ball? <laughs> <laughs> um, we collected newspapers, tin cans, all of those things. Our car was up on um, blocks, big blocks. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, tires taken off and tried to preserve them. There's no gas. Uh, they had stamps for gas if you wanted to get fuel and you couldn't get much. And uh, they had stamps for you to get sugar. It was rationed according to how many were in your family. Uh, you get that as many books as you had, six children. Um, mother, mother was very good at... Um, food and rationing and uh, stretching things out. My father was a stamp collector. He kept all of his stamp books that came to him with his allotment for his stamp collection. So mother had one less book to use, but that didn't matter. You know, things like that you overlooked. They were small problems concerned to the bigger thing that was going on. There were stamps that were sold in school. You could get the saving stamps, either 10 cent ones or 25 cents. And you had your little books. And once a week, you would take your money in and the teacher could sell you stamps depending on how much money you had. So that, that was very big. There were def were defense saving stamps from, from which if you... You would come. save them, and it, yeah. they cost eighteen seventy-five dollars for a bond. For one bond, so you would turn in when the book was full. You would turn it in, and it was now worth twenty-five dollars. So everybody was buying saving stamps, whether you had money for it or not. Um, everybody was into the effort. The Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts did things that would help in uh, helping encourage people to buy the stamps. Um, we had poppy day and um, the scouts would sell poppies and the dollar for the poppy would go into the defense fund. Uh, Red Cross was very, very much involved and the scouts and other organizations would be there helping roll bandages and do things. I think Herb's mother went out uh, to one of the churches, and they were all rolling bandages to send into the war zones. And the uh, knitting. Knitting. Socks and things. So that was, everybody was totally immersed. I still have two of the savings bonds. Wow. <laughs> Never turned them in for the $25. Yeah. Uh, and um, did... You see a lot of, I know when people talk about World War II and was there a lot of women that have to go into work to fill this? Oh, yes. Was that a whole, how was that? How did you, did that affect you at all or your family? It, it did. My mother was um, called in to help. 
she she uh, was an extraordinary cook and chef. And uh, so she was working at a bakery. Um, after the war, because of her uh, knowledge that they that they knew she had been working, she was called into Lehigh University kitchens, and she was the bakery chef. Um, even with a family at home, you know they may do. You know, yeah. everybody is willing to help. We did the work in the household because she had she had been called in. My dad was asked to uh, give up his shop. Um, automotive parts, and he was called in because he was too old <laughs> to fight. Uh, he was called to go into the uh, steel company, and uh, he was a bookkeeper or accountant there. Um, so you changed your jobs. You know, you didn't even talk about it. You just did it. As soon as they just told you where to go, and that's what you did. You did of? it. They delegated. You did it. it. Yeah. yeah. They were happy to be able to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, after the war, a funny thing is that um, everybody was so happy and celebrating however they could. My dad decided he was going to take the whole family down to Atlantic City to see the ice capades. So he borrowed my uncle's car. So we had two cars to go down. My brother drove one and dad drove the other. Six children, a mother and dad, and we all fit into these two cars. They didn't have seat belts then. Oh, no. <laughs> so any way you could get in and sit down on people's laps, you were there. So we planned to go down in the morning, get there to the uh, show in the afternoon, and then come home in the evening. And this was just before school started was the weekend before school started. So we got in the car and um, got on our way. And it wasn't uh, very long before we had a flat tire. So, you know, this is when they had the balloon tubes inside a rubber outing, all right? So um, my dad got out and we fixed the tire. And um, you get a patch from a little container and you put a piece of this soft, it's thicker than a balloon, but it's that kind of rubber patch and you cut it to shape and put it on. And um, you have to find a hole first. Wait, oh yes, <laughs> finding the hole. You have to put the rubber tube in some kind, immerse it in some kind of um, water, water, water. Yeah. and you can see it bubble because the air will show the bubbles. So they found that, and then they patched it. And okay, um, we barely got started when there, the tube went down again. This happened about 14 times on that trip. <laughs> we were in and out of gas stations. Repairing this tire and this tire and buying whatever they happened to have oh, in the gosh. gas station. He would buy it, whether it was the right size to fit on the car or not, to get down there. It was 
Yeah. <laughs> Pretty stressful. Did, you can didn't, they, didn't they fill at least one tire with on sand? On the way back, oh, they on the finally way back. on the way back they finally filled um, the one tire with sand <laughs> to blow it up and put it in that casing. <laughs> <laughs> we did get there, but it was probably the latest show in the whole day. And of course, coming back, we drove all night with the tires going up and <laughs> in and out of uh, gas stations. It, it, it was. <laughs> oh God! It was the uh, trip of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. it was. We, we got back about seven o'clock the next morning, and of course. <laughs> None of us had slept all night, and um, so we didn't have to go to school the first day of school. <laughs> that was awful, because yeah. I never missed school. I had a you know hundred percent attendance, not that year. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the things that happen to you, and what people tried to do to make the best of life. Yeah, go yeah. back to their original jobs. Yeah. Most of the people. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know if you've read about this, but the, the country was united and they were turning out stuff unbelievable. The uh, At the Battle of Lady Gulf, we had 25 aircraft carriers. Now, not the gigantic ones, but 25 ships that could fly <coughs> airplanes off of it. And they took commercial ships and, and put the flat tops on them. In just one bottom, we had 25. And they were turning out submarines, I think, maybe once a month or something like that. Just, that it just was unbelievable. The, the war and the change with the women going in to work on um, welding and doing the men's jobs, that actually was the change in the country where women were in the workplace. They got their opportunity to go get out of the home and do what they wanted to do. So how was it being a woman back then? Was there, you know, we always hear about women in World War yeah, II. But she's, really she's a women. child, so yeah, it's I was hard just to... A kid. Just a little, a kid. I um, never experienced any kind of a problem. Yeah. Although some of our, room, our uh, classmates at college, um, Herb knew of one girl who wanted to get into engineering. And well, they, yeah, that was after the war, yeah. After the war. Yeah. And uh, now I, all the soldiers are coming back, and that made a difference. And that, that made a lot of competition It was a shame, because really bright girls. Yeah. One went down to a Drexel and got in the line to be an engineer, and they told her she was in the wrong line, and she insisted not, and they brought some higher guy up and told her that she couldn't go in. That's sad. Yeah. And that was not the only one I knew of. But I... Uh, I had taken physics in high school, and a young girl, her name was Betty Bunty, had been in elementary school with me, and she was the only uh, person in that physics, a woman in that physics class. After the war, uh, I was walking down the main street in Bethlehem, and there she was with her mother. She had become an engineer at, at the, the Boeing uh, aircraft plant. And uh, she succeeded where a lot of others uh, didn't get that high. But I mean, the women worked on all over the place by that time. 
How was did Rosie the Riveter play a big part in your life at all? Was it was Rosie the Riveter really as like big as you know my generation has learned yeah. it to be, or is it just kind of like a small part? Of well, no, it's it, it was a big part, but not in our personal life. She was too young to know about that. Yeah, I yeah. didn't even know at about the time it. I graduated from um, or went to college. The only things we ever thought of was well, we were going to get married after we went to school. Um, and those who did go to college usually thought, well, I'll probably be a nurse or a, a teacher. You, you never even thought of other opportunities. And yet one, once we got out, uh, we, we were accepted and we were looked at. And, uh, you know, finally they found women had a lot of brains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, definitely. Real quick, that, that uh, was the change. Lots of changes. Yeah. I need to get a charger real quick. You guys continue. I'm just gonna go out to cut the car and get a charger so I can plug this in. Okay. It's running low on battery. We got like 50 minutes left, but I don't want it to die. I I think shouldn't we take a break for yeah, lunch? Yeah, we could, actually that would be, yeah we could do that. Would that be good for you? Yeah, yeah, we can take a break. Oh yeah, yeah it's one one twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or uh, yeah, did you want to do more? It's up to you. I, I would love to continue if you guys are. are well, it's up to you. If you, if do you that, want to do you, that. We now. need to well, we, we feed can... them or something. Well, I can feed you here or we can take you right up to our little cafe. Thank you so much for, for the lunch. And uh, it was a pleasant time talking with you during that. Um, what our next question was, uh, you grew up um, in the Great Depression, right? Just want to make okay. Just want to make sure. Mm -hmm. I'm, I was pretty sure. I was like, yeah, okay. Um, what was that like? <clears throat> I can answer that uh, in two things. One, although our parents worked, there was no money. Children, whatever. We had nothing. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I can remember going window shopping with my parents. And I would see, when I was a little kid, when I see something that's pretty neat in a window, I mentioned it. They simultaneously say, we can't afford it. I don't think you ever hear those words today. That's the two biggest things I remember. How old are you? Well, it would be anywhere from five to, 10 years old. Yeah. How was how it for you, Nancy Lou? Well, being uh, in a family with six children, um, it was very sparse. But you know, we never real we never knew there was more money than we needed. We were never used to any money. And when you don't have money, you don't um, think about it. <laughs> yeah, we my dad really provided for us beautifully with the work he did. And my mother managed money very, very carefully. Um, I wore my brother's leftover trousers and little suits he had. And I imagine a lot of the things that were given uh, that we wore in clothing was given to us by our um, aunt who was um, maiden. She didn't she never married until she was about 45 or later. 
And so she loved uh, all of all six of us, and I know gave us beautiful gifts. I can remember a bunny fur, a white bunny fur mitt at Christmas. And I mean, that was the best thing you could ever get. For our Christmas, we would get um, three pairs of cotton panties and three pairs of socks, a coloring book, things like that. And we loved it. I mean, Christmas was wonderful for us. We never knew differently, so it yeah, didn't matter. We might get, I might get one present at Christmas. Yeah, we yeah. never, we never um, went shopping with my mother and dad, except groceries. And sometimes we had to stay in the car while they shopped. No, when I when we weren't shopping, we were window shopping. That doesn't mean you were buying well, anything. You, you went on a walk because you lived in that area. Yeah, right. But. Um, our dad would take our big trip was to go on a Sunday in the car and the Packard I told you about. We'd pile in and um, he would just drive us around to nearby counties and nearby areas and tell us the history of them, what the name was. And that's how, even though I didn't live anywhere near Nanticoke or um, other places in the Poconos that we went, we heard about them when we drove through them and knew where they were. And after the end of our afternoon ride, we always went to the Hershey's ice cream store and got an ice cream cone. And that was the big treat that we had all the time. And it was wonderful. And if the ice cream ran down the side of the cone, our dad took care of that too. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we didn't feel deprived. Mother sewed and she would get uh, Aunt Grace's old coat, tear it apart, and make it into a coat for one of my older sisters, which passed down. I, and we didn't I, mind. I had a similar Happened to you? thing when I went going to elementary school. I wore my brother's clothes and my mother would take tucks. <laughs> she, she, she could sew well in, in, in the sleeves. I wore all their clothes, hand-me-downs. But for one thing, they were always sewn. They didn't have holes in them, and they were clean. Always clean. She was proud of them being clean. And I think, I think one time uh, we, we, the, the, our te my teacher knew that we didn't have a lot of money, so we got to take the Christmas tree home from the school. And we dragged that Christmas tree all the way home. There was a great deal of sharing and caring for other people. That's a good thing. I wanted to talk about that. Uh, there was a, a family that lived in the next block. They, my mother would send me over there with a dollar and not to tell my father. And what the deal was is the steelworks where my father worked, they got their pay on Thursday. But the paint shop where this other man worked, they got paid on Friday. So this $1 carried her over to Friday when she would give it back. And, uh, and, and from time to time, uh, we call them hobos. One would show up at your back door. My mother would always give them a sandwich or something like that. So sharing was part of it. My my dad bought my grandmother's 
little house that she had out in the country near Harvey's Lake, three miles from Harvey's Lake. It was on a little farm at a barn, and Dad bought a cow and two ponies and two horses, some chickens, some pigs, and we were out there from the time school closed in June until September when it opened to give us the experience of farm and what you do on a farm, how, how, do, how you help. We all helped and had a marvelous time. But he didn't have to buy those ponies because they were for us. And he had a little cart for us. And we learned how to do, take care of them, how to milk a cow, how, how to do hay, haying. Um, it, it was just wonderful. So you couldn't do any more than that if you saved a little bit during the rest of the school year and provided that for us. He drove back and forth <clears throat> from his um, job to get to the farm every day. But we were there for those two months, and it was marvelous. That's incredible. That's great. Well, I want to share a story about the gang of kids that I played with. The gang word just meant that we were friends. Uh, one of the things we would do is play softball in a small lot. We had no gloves, so that's why we didn't play hardball. Uh, until one Christmas, one of the kids got a, a, a catcher's mitt. Well, it was a glove. Let's say a glove. We used that for the catcher. He he would. That was that was all of him. And then we had. Uh, a softball that was beat up and repaired with electrical tape. And uh, when one of our good hitters hit it, you could see this tape streaming off and it had to be repaired. So we, we suffered through all that. But, uh, yeah, we played. I, I was the littlest kid. My, they called me Shadow because I was so skinny. <laughs> but I got to play no matter what. They, uh, they really... Uh, Showed me a true friendship. Yeah, friendship in that way. We uh, we had a a brick for home plate, a corner of a building for another, and then we had another stone for second base. And then we had some lady's gate for third base. And since I wasn't, a, I, my hands were always small. I had a hard time catching a a, a Hard, a softball, uh, I was made steady pitcher. And uh, we never had enough for two teams, so we uh, we rotated positions. If you caught a ball, you could go right to play. Otherwise, if somebody's out, everybody moved positions around. So that's kind of how we played that game. But that was fun. And they, I, I tell everybody that we had nicknames, like the... Uh, Gilbert Miller was called Bullet, and Misi was called Misi. My best friend, Jildo Ruggieri, had a build-in nickname, Jildo, so we didn't do it. I was called Shadow, but they always, always had uh, Bobby the Greek. Now, his father had a hot dog uh, store on uh, the main street, and you could get a, a popsicle for five cents or even a hot dog. But uh, 
Bobby the Greek was uh, one of our playmates. So we had, oh yeah, I forgot, Jimmy Burns, he was Catholic. He had to go to a parochial school. So we wouldn't see him till the summertime, but we did have Catholic, Catholics, Protestants, one Jew, uh, the uh, the tailor in town was Jewish, and his son played with us, Billy Smith. Uh, so we had great times together, and uh, I'll never forget that. And there was a time when I, we moved out of this alley we lived in, uh, about a mile, and then out very close to the high school, and I never saw... Uh, Jildo again. That was a sad thing. You would think that if when the war came, you know, we would be all spread all over, but somehow I, I don't know what happened to Jildo. I did see Misi in high school and Bobby the Greek, but I didn't see anybody else. I, it was just sad. It was, so only a mile or so away. But that's one of my saddest times. And I, I I remember going back to that elementary school. It was uh, a three-story building. It was the oldest public school in Bethlehem. It had a big chain-link fence so no balls would go out in the street. The building was one side. There was houses on this side, so they had another chain-link fence. But it didn't have one in the back. But none of the recess was big-time fun. And because I was so skinny at lunchtime, I would go down to the basement and they would give me a little bottle of milk and some graham crackers. I think I started school lunches, but the, <laughs> the rude thing is you had to be underweight. There was about four of us that went down every four. Every four uh, and then, of course, the fun time, one, well, many fun times, but one of them was uh, May Day. Do you guys ever get involved in May Day programs at school? No. Uh, that was a, one of the highlights of the year. We had uh, it used to be a, a big day back in the day. We'd be uh, practicing something that you might call square dance. I uh, this dance was called clap, stamp, bow. You clap, stamp, and bow, and then you twirl a girl around. It'd be like square dancing and that sort of thing. And we did that, and then they had. Dignitaries that would come in, the, the the families would all bring desserts, and uh, the main dessert was a a little cup of Dixie cup of ice cream with the wooden spoon. Have you ever been involved in that? The ice cream was always three layers. Yeah, <laughs> so maple. And then, of course, at the end, the girls would do the maple dance, twining the ribbons around. Mm -hmm. That was a, that was our excitement for the year. So you guys, you've lived obviously through many decades and seen a lot. Um, what was, how are things today different from the 1940s? Um, like what, what is the, one of the biggest differences maybe? It's very sad. Uh, well, I a think one of the thing is that our grandchildren are, or our great grandchildren, they have toys out of the gazoo. We got one <laughs> Toy at Christmas, maybe, <laughs> but they have stuff all over the place. And even our children had a bunch of stuff. We had to put some of it away for a while to, and then bring it out again. But <laughs> well, there's so much plastic that most of the things are made of plastic or 
that type of thing, so that it's they are a lot less expensive. But uh, and and they wear most of them if they're well made. You know, they last a while. But um, ours were made of metal and a dump truck or um, a steam shovel. And we passed those down. I mean, we kept some of those and even had one or two for our own children because we, we, they were prizes for us. You never got rid of them. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, all of our grandchildren are very knowledgeable about the computer and their movies. And it's good that they have those things and have learned all of those um, technical things about them. But unfortunately, they don't learn how to play outside and socialize and imagine. I mean, we made up so many games. Yeah, we didn't have right. all of the games that are made up for them. Candy Crush. Um, Do you find that um, because uh, back then, I, I imagine you guys used your imaginations much more when it came, uh, came oh, to playing. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Much yeah. less than they kids do today because they video games. My favorite game was uh, playing war. My mother had a bag of clothespins. So you take two clothespins like this. That was a, uh, a fence or it could be a horse, two clothespins, one. And uh, you could, I, I would make a fortress with these clothespins. I built a little uh, log cabin for my general to be in. And then I would take marbles and shoot at them, okay? <laughs> and after I knocked them all down, I'd build it up again, maybe different, and play it over and over again. And then one, sometimes when it was raining, my brothers would play with me. Now, the biggest rule we had, and by the way, this is where I learned to play by the rules. The biggest rule was you had, you had the, the last one playing had to clean up. And that's because our parents wanted the house tidy. So it had to be clean. So one time we were, we were getting ready to play. We set it up. They set up their army. They would always beat me. I didn't care because they could shoot marbles better. But they got all set up and they said, we quit. <laughs> that means I was stuck with cleaning up. Dirty trick. Okay. So I complained and started crying to my mom. But it turns out. There was a rule. The last guy cleans up. So that's where I learned playing by the rules. There's no way of getting around it. <laughs> and they used that to toughen me up too. My older brothers will do that for you. Is there any other like big differences that you would want to speak on um, from the 1940s to now um, in any in any facet? I mean, there's just more money around. The, yeah. There's more activities, but we do have one grandchild that he's uh, he's, he's spends his time looking at a, his computer too much and playing games. It's hard to have a conversation with them, mm -hmm. but most of them do still run around. They come here, they're running around here, out the door, around the house. They're just playing hide and seek and things like. They don't even know how they don't know how to play hide and seek. You have to teach them. <laughs> oh, no, we're that far gone. But they'll make it up themselves. And, uh, back in those days, mothers and dads didn't have to 
know every minute where their children were. Now they have to watch them. They have to stay close at home where they can see them. Don't ever go two blocks away. It's not safe. And this is very sad. Yeah. But back then, you know. Oh, yeah. We would when you were play all day on a Saturday or I something. I was about four years old when my <coughs> older uh, sisters and one brother uh, wanted to go to Harvey's Lake. And we walked all the way three miles to Harvey's Lake to go swimming for the day and walk back. Didn't think anything about it. I would go walking off into the woods across from our farmhouse by myself. I loved doing that, climbing up the mountain and maybe picking a wild blueberries or raspberries. Now, I was under five at that time. One time, I was almost bit by a rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. I came upon it and I heard it rattling and I took off. <laughs> I was smart enough, and I knew enough at that age to take care of myself, and I got away from it. It didn't make me afraid of the woods, because I loved them. Mm-hmm. But uh, those are the things you learned earlier, you know, the real rules of life, preservation. <laughs> yeah. That's but it was different. The only time we had to be home was for meals. And um, we learned more, I think, about taking care of ourselves. and. Um, we weren't babied as much as little kids are. You know, now you just love them to death and you're holding them and you're they're right beside you. And But we were w- more on our own. You guys have more responsibility, you think? Than... Absolutely. Freedom, responsibility. I, I, yeah, I had to take care of my two little sisters. <clears throat> and mostly I taught them school. And uh, they had to do what I told them to do. They (laughs) sat in there and they did their math. And maybe they learned it a little earlier, you know, because I taught them spelling. And as little as I knew, because I was just a couple years older. um, I had several uh, uh, medical problems. When I was three, I uh, complained to my mother that my neck hurt. So she took me to the doctor and uh, he quickly took me to the hospital. And uh, apparently I had an infection of my uh, glands over here. I forget the name of them. But uh, I don't think they had antibiotics. So they opened that up. I have a big scar here from that. Three years old, they drained it and drained it. And Mm -hmm. it just got better. So I, I I say that that's the first time I, the first bullet that I missed, that, that missed me, and uh, that I ducked. I had another oper- thing when I was, I don't know, six or seven. I had scarlet fever. It's a very dangerous disease. Uh, I know people who have uh, had heart problems and things like that. But I, my mother said that I had. Uh, scarlatina, which the doctor had said it was a milder case. But on the other hand, I had a fever for weeks. All my skin peeled off. And uh, I was a sick little kid for one. I was quarantined. My two brothers had to stay home from school. My mother had to stay home. My father was allowed to go to work. But uh, we were quarantined. They put a sign on your front door, quarantined. We had the mumps. I had the same thing, a sign on the door. But uh, 
I managed to uh, survive that thing and without any problems. I, bullet number two that it, that I dodged. And you're 96, right? Yeah. Wow. He dodged a few bullets. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he did. So, well, someone's I, looking out for you. <laughs> I even had the flu back there. I mean, uh, you got the flu. You were sick. You, you're, you ached and had aches and pains and everything. You were survived that more than once. Uh, I was supposed to go with her to her prom when I came down with that. The night, the very night before, or day before. Wow. Um, one little story about my brother. He was two years older than I, but he seemed to have more problems in school. Um, I, I helped him with his spelling, and... Um, I helped him write some of his paragraphs, his English work that he had to do. And for that, um, I would lace up his high high boots, his high to go to school. A lot of things like that. As he got older, we found he, he had an incredible mind. He invented many things. He worked at the Bethlehem Steel through me. I was a babysitter and my... Uh, the man that I took care of his children asked me if I had a brother, and um, I think he must have heard something about him. And he said he'd like to hire him in the chemical department, and he was there for the rest of his life, uh, moving up the ladder. Um, terrible time trying to read and to spell. And as I think about it, I think he had dyslexia. They never knew about that at that time. And he just didn't see things as other people did. But um, he invented a bowling ball measurement where... Um, a, a ball for measuring... A, a ball for measuring bowling balls individually. Going. And you could get, you know, for your three fingers, you could exactly put the ball where it was comfortable. And um, he was very fortunate with that. He worked on the bowling alley and figured out how they could keep air conditioning. They could keep the wood from- The bowling alley warps from warping. with time. So he had a passage under there where he controlled the air content. And he was the first to put together the um, golf carts. He was a wonderful mechanic, and uh, he loved to work on those all the time. And so he's the one who invented the first golf cart that you could ride around on the golf. Wow, cool. So he didn't need yeah. to, he could be dyslexic. He, he was brilliant, but he yeah. couldn't read properly. <laughs> he got he got by without it, right? He bypassed that, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. That's funny. So um, what is your advice for couples today to have a long and happy marriage? You guys have been together like, 71 years, you said? Yeah. What was your advice? I think you have to find someone who has interests in the same things you do. I mean, if if you have the guy who loves to spend 24 hours a day on the golf course and you like to uh, visit a museum, that's not a good mix. You know, if you can't learn to work together, enjoy one another's activities, you don't have anything to base 
uh, your well, life on but you have for to, the future. You have to know there's two people that are not any different than us. Yeah, we're very we're black and white. I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm one. I'm I work in a stream. I do this and I do that. I'm linear. She's multitask. So that's way different. We have lots of differences like that. She likes to f arrange furniture in, in crooked places. I like them all square. <laughs> but we, we used to we have a so long with yeah. that. <laughs> we used to we but we built an addition to our other, other house, and we had a, a living room and a dining room. So the sofa would be nice and square, and I would take a, a rest there. Uh, Nancy would come home and turn that sideways. Okay. So people would ask me about that. And I said, well, I, I had it straightened and I'd make it crooked again before she came home. She, I was retired and she was. <laughs> but, you know, in spite of that, nothing is so important if you really love one another. And, and you talk everything over. We talk over everything. And if you get to the point where you can't talk and you're really battling, which we've never really had a serious uh, talk that upset us so much. Um, but if you start to get to that point, stop talking because you're not doing any good by continuing an argument. Forget about it. You know, the next day it doesn't even matter. Yeah. So it's just a lot of give and take. And I would do everything for him and he would do it for me. So it's, you know, you care about the other person. You value them and you respect yeah, them. Yeah, you have to do every little thing that you can for the other person. You can't just live your own life. You have to be continually think about the other one. Giving up self. You know, a lot of people are turned so much on themselves that they don't consider the other person. Might be tired, not want to do something now. But I said, you were going to do this. Yeah. Why not? You know, forget it. <laughs> That's the best we can do on that Lots subject. Lots of things. <laughs> and you laugh about it after that, right? That was good. That was good. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and th this is an optional question. Um, I, I usually ask people this on my podcast, and it, it's a, a way to result in some, it results in some interesting answers. Um, but what is the hardest thing either of you have ever faced in either life or war? The hardest thing. Well, I, for me, it's easy. Uh, it was the fear in war. That was the hardest thing. You have to be able to operate under continual fear. And... Uh, I, I wasn't able to do that without, I'm sure, help from the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no bill. No, no, there's no doubt in my mind. <clears throat> and when the war was over, uh, we celebrated uh, we celebrated VJ uh, Day in, no, excuse me, VE Day in Europe. And there was a big celebration. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember much about it. I just know that I didn't drink. And uh, so I, I had no problems with that. Well, anyway, the next morning, about five in the morning, a sergeant comes into me and says, some of the guys have been drinking and 
they're they're not capable of going on guard duty. Would you take an extra turn? I said, yeah, sure, I'd do that. So uh, I was put on guard at the butcher shop this time. And uh, early in the morning, a little old German guy came walking up the cobblestone street at maybe six in the morning. And he said, good morning. And I choked up. I, I have a thing that if I get very, very uh, strained, stressed, I choke up and I can't speak. So I ended up saying nothing. The next morning, that guy came up again and he said, good Morgan. And I happened to manage to say, good Morgan. And that's when, not on VE Day, that's not when the war is. That's when the war ended for me. Again, I maybe this isn't important, but I'm positive the Holy Spirit sent that guy to me. But whatever it was, I I never hated the Germans. I never had a nightmare like you hear people having. Uh, I certainly dream about the war from time to time, but I, it's never an, a totally negative thing. And I even started to feel sorry for the Germans. And uh, I tell people that, but at one time this year when I'm writing my book, I was checking on some, from, from my old letters uh, some dates. And I have 150 letters. I was going through them and I put them in order and everything, but I noticed this. From that day, I had negative things write, written home about the Germans. Afterward, there were no more negative things. Unbelievable. I didn't know I did that. But uh, that for me, that was a wonderful thing that happened. I never had that same feeling about the Japanese. I was never over there, but I've never, uh, I've never given up hating the Japanese for what they did to our guys. They were just unbelievable, horrible people. I'm sure that doesn't happen in Japan today, but boy, back then it was. I'm glad I wasn't in the Pacific. I, I remember sometimes I would take Nancy to work. I was retired and she's still working. And they put up a Japanese flag out in front of, <laughs> front of their building because they had visitors from Japan. It was hard for me. Did, what, what about you, Nancy Lou? Did you, what was the... One time in school, and I think I was probably <laughs> in about eighth grade, that the teacher was talking to us about our emotions and how we felt at different times and what would bother them, us. And as I thought, I thought, I'm really very even... Um, in my feelings. I don't know whether when I've ever had been so joyful that I couldn't stand myself, you know, and I was never really so sad that uh, it bothered me. I, I could hold my feelings in check. And I guess that's because coming from a big family, you can't start crying every time to mom and, you know. So I never expressed my feelings, my fear or whatever. Um, I, I think I did find 
that um, you can control yourself and um, not get so down. You can, you can look beyond that. And I, I think I've pretty well been that way, haven't I? I think so, yeah. Um, when our children, the, the hardest thing to tolerate or to experience is if your children are hurt or um, ha having ill, having surgery or something. That's what really hurts you most. And um, when you can't do something about it, my mother always said, don't be a worrier. If you can do something about it, you think about it and you figure out a way to handle it. And she never, she thought a lot about things, but she, I guess she felt she didn't worry. I don't think I worry much. Um, I consider things a lot and find a way to get beyond it. And I think when your children are ill, the best thing you can do is pray for them and take care of their needs that you know you can handle. And then just pray that they will be better. You know, in, in that vein, uh, all our children have been very fortunate in their work, in their life, in their and the people they married, and we're just blessed all the way through that. But we have a, a Leslie. Uh, let's see, Amy's an expert in math, okay? And she's really smart. Herb, he's a doctor. I don't know where he came from. He's so smart, I can't believe it. He's one of our children. And then Rob, he's the youngest. And again, if I want advice today on, on any kind of Technical, technical thing. I go to Rob, okay. But Leslie, when she was in like fifth grade or something, the teacher sent a note home that she doesn't relate. I don't know what that meant, but uh, she got by in school. But you can't ask her what a percentage is today. Uh, she had problems. Like, but the real problems hit her were these. She had breast cancer. Talk about being upset. She lived through that for five years, and then they said she was, if you get through five years, you're in pretty good shape. Well, poor Leslie uh, had a son who, when he's about 13 or 14, he started getting psychotic problems. <sighs> that was, I mean, I don't know how she stood up under that. It was, I said to her, uh, does it feel like the it's raining outside and you're afraid the house is going to fall down and the roof is going to collapse? She says, Dad, it's already come down. She was so upset, but she had to live through that. And so you feel for your children. That's She had the other operation. Oh, yeah, it just goes on and She's on. She's the one who had the operations, and she was in an auto accident with me. And I got over my problem, which was serious, but uh, we didn't find out until a few months later that uh, she had a broken back. One of her one of her vertebrae, the, the cartilage around it, was destroyed, and we didn't know it. it. It looked like a bump there, and we took her took her to a different doctor, and this doctor took one X-ray and looked at it. He says, "We have to operate on her immediately." If she gets bumped, she's going to be paralyzed. 
though now she had to go get an operation. Oh. It was such a delicate operation. They took some uh, bones. bones from her hip bones. and they put a piece over the top of this, these two vertebrae and wired them together and they're supposed to fuse. Uh, and it was such a delicate, delicate thing. They couldn't put a brace on her. She had to lie in bed for six months on her back. Can you imagine? She may be 16. Uh, one thing that was going for her, she was taking ballet. She loved ballet. She was in the hospital. The, 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 the person that was supposed to be doing the physical therapy for her said, she's stronger than I am. But anyway, she lived six months on her back. And never complained. Never complained. And so she's had blow she after blow after blow. I won't tell you about the, the lady that knocked her down and ran over up with her car on her foot, knocked her down and then and, and didn't know whether to get get how to get off. Somebody got her out of the car and the guy drove them off. So she had to crushed bones. And she had to have some a pin put in that. Like this. Anyway, living through your children being hurt is one of the hardest things that we've ever had. Trash like that. Um, that's your choice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Are you coming up with harder uh, and harder questions? No, There's just one thing that I was determining whether to ask about, uh, which okay. came up to me. Um, but another idea, another question I had. Um, what was your biggest motivation for joining the military in World War II? I mean, we had, what was it like there was Pearl Harbor, there was yeah. all these things. I mean, there was reasons. What was the biggest thing for you? Biggest thing? For joining? Yeah. Your brothers, your ancestors. Well, yeah, it's my, my brother Tom was in the National Guard before the war. And he uh, was one of those that was down in North Carolina training. They, I don't know if you saw any of this anywhere. They had trucks and they wrote tank on the side. They didn't have tanks. So they improvised. We actually went down to see them, uh, see my brother. My brother, John, the only one that ever had a car in the family in those days. He drove all the way down on 45 miles an hour on all two-lane roads from uh, up in Bethlehem down to... Uh, Virginia Beach. Uh, that 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 motivation came uh, when Tom, when the war started, and Tom was called to duty from there up on Coney Island to protect New York City, and then eventually, on uh, November of forty-two, he was. Uh, sent with the invasion force into Africa. So I have a brother, it's already in Africa. We followed that and I'm not even out, you know, able to graduate yet. And then he sent that to, to Italy and he got the yellow jaundice there, sent to a hospital. So he was already over there. That's one thing and I had somebody in the family. The other thing is that we're, parents are Scottish, and English. Soon as that war started, they were mentally involved. We listened to the radio every day on that. So there was a lot of history here. Our fam 
People in this country were saying, we pulled their chestnuts out of the fire in World War I. We're not doing it again. That's what people felt until Pearl Harbor. But our parents were in that war from day one. Uh, so we're, we have a different background than many other people. I was ready to go the, the day I came. I, in fact, I enlisted when I was 17. It, it's, it's true that uh, they came and, and said, we'll send you to college. <laughs> That that was another inducement to go there, but uh, and then when they kicked the, gave rid of that program and sent me to the infantry, well, you live with what you 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 that's what you're uh, handed. So I I didn't have any problem going in. I I, I don't I can't say it straight out what is it that did it, because <laughs> for me it was going to college, <laughs> but uh, had no fear of going. Um, what, and this is a question for both of you, um, what matters most to you? What matters most? My family. Yeah, our family. Yeah. What family we have. And number one, of course, would be the first. Right. But the rest of my family, I would do anything for any one of them. Is there any advice you'd like to pass on to future generations? You know, I think we didn't mention it at all, but uh, I think the church has been a part of our lives, all our lives. I was sent to kindergarten at Wesley Methodist Church when I was little. Nancy was brought up uh, church down the street, Episcopal Church. Uh, I think that's helped us, basically. We took our children to church uh, every Sunday even when they were little, uh, and they all became Christians. Uh, to me, that's a mainstay. We both go to still go to Bible study. I've taught Bible study for years and years, fifth grade, every grade you could think of in church. I've sung in church choir, so has Nancy. Uh, it's always been the biggest part of our lives. So that's that's the last of my questions. Um, did you guys have any other things you wanted to talk about? Have no, we 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 basically run out of time. Oh, I yeah. think yeah, I think <laughs> we so. talk all day. I think you've I, done a very I, good I really, job. Yeah, thank I, you, thank you. Very, I wish very you good, very much good questions. Thank you. I have not been asked good questions like that ever before. Really? No. Oh, thank you. I'm just they just concentrated flattered. on the war and whatever, but. You, no, you, you you've got into the life. Yeah, oh, you made it incredibly yes. easy because you you went start to finish through uh, all of it, and uh, better than I, I I thought I could yeah. <laughs> ask questions to to. So to I hope listen. that helped you then. Yeah, thank Good. you. I, I appreciate we appreciate we both appreciate you spending the time and taking and letting us come in your home and Good. and film this, and uh, we will. You have a book coming out as well, Herb. Yep. Uh, I'll make sure you know about it uh, when it comes out. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Do your best. It's on that paper. Oh, I'll put. It's, yeah, I'll yes, make sure I put it on the Do your best. Um, you have to know where that came from. First grade. I'm going to first grade, and I'm a skinny little shy guy. Okay. <laughs> I was shy, even all through high school. I couldn't find a date to go to the the junior, uh, senior junior prom for trying. A buddy got me a a blind date. 
So anyway, I'm I'm go- first grade. I'm going to school. And my mother says. She gave me a kiss and she said, do your best. No one can ask you to do anything more than that. I've remembered that all through my life. It's more than just do your best. You can't ask you to do any more than your best. And whatever that happens to be for any individual would be different, of course, but do your best. That's, that's, that's the theme. That's great. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. It's been you. an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Herb. Yeah. And thank you. And uh, you are doing Luke. doing your Clinic best. If you. I ever saw anybody doing it, trying to do his best, it's you outside. <laughs> <laughs> Both <you>. of you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like more content from the Ridyards, there is a 30-minute clip that I left out from the beginning where they discuss their aeronautics careers. It's a bit complicated, and I felt it best served as supplementary material. You can find this clip at ProfitableProductions.com backslash podcast. Profitable is spelled like my name with two Fs and two Ts. You can find this episode's page after take 10. The link is also in the description, and the clip is at the bottom of the page. Also, check out Herb's book, Do Your Best, Family, Friends, Mentors, and the U.S. Army Guide to Boy to Manhood, written by Herbert W. Ridyard. The link for that is also in the description and on the episode page of the website. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed.